stay muted um, unless Steve says, you know, chip in, but otherwise it might disrupt the recording just a little bit. So I'd ask that of you all. Um, but yeah, thank you, Steve. I just pray for you as you sit miles away in Kent across the, the other on the wrong side of the river. So uh, God, we just thank you so much for Steve joining us this morning. God, thank you for all that you've um, equipped him with and thank you for all the things that he's given to proximity in the past, God, for his teaching, for his words of life and encouragement and for the impact he's had on each of us here. And uh, Father, yeah, we just ask for your blessing on him now, your strengthening and God, that you'd bless his preparation this morning, God, and, and lead him as he leads us. Amen. So grab your notepads and pens. Take Katie Johnny's example. Over to you, Steve. Yeah, it's going to be helpful if you do um, take notes. I, I laughed with Charles. I said, like, Charles, are you sure that this is just one session? Because um, there's 25 pages of Adam Cox's and Alan Emerson's notes. I actually think it's three sessions. So this is my disclaimer. This is three sessions. It's the overview of God's story and sessions one and two. Um, and anybody who knows Adam Cox's notes would know that this is a lot of content to put into 40 minutes. Um, so to do it justice, really, I, I'm going to give like an overview and some impression of what I've what's captured me as I've been reading it. But they, they give five reasons why you'd want to do this. God's story is a, a, a course in, in a sense, but there are many different books that would say that the best way to understand the Bible is to understand its, its narrative. The, the whole um, overarching story will really help you to understand key themes and I, we'll all remember if we've if we've been handling the Bible for a long time, moments where people have unpacked something from the New Testament and been able to take you all the way back to the origins of the story from the Old Testament. And, and you just had this light bulb moment when you've moved around the Bible and gone, oh, my goodness, that connects to that. Um, Jesus said this because of that. Um, and, and there's this clear sense of huge themes that carry right the way on from Genesis all the way through. But in any story, beginning and ends are, are significant. So when you come to the origin story and the Genesis story, um, the beginning and of the story is a great place um, to look and dive in for some of these key themes that are going to be pulled out at other points in the story. There's five reasons given for why you'd want to go on this God story journey. And they are one, to help you to know the author. To help you to experience God and to know God. In, in, and, and begin to unpack what you know of God and where that stems from. And there's a quote from Tozer. He wrote a book um, uh, called, no, um, sorry, um, it was Pagabert, um, uh, Tozer. I'm already lost in the notes, Charles. Can you believe it? In the Adam Cox notes, um, which we'll come to. And it's basically, you can find it, it's in red somewhere, that what you think of when you first come up, the image of God, I'm sure it's actually from Packer, knowing God, he says, when you, what's the image of God that comes into your mind first? When the name God is mentioned, what comes to your mind first and foremost is that which is most important. You know, so when we talk about God, when we come to this idea of God's story, what you first think of, that first image that comes to your mind, do you know the author of the story? The second is to help you to frame your worldview around the story. Slightly more complex in that um, you are being formed into a narrative you are being formed into a story. One way or another, you are being shaped by either the world around you and its worldview, which will shift and change over the years, or you've been shaped in this idea of a biblical narrative and a biblical worldview. So it's helpful for us to unpick the biblical story, to understand the kind of 
narrative, the kind of world, the kind of decisions we should be making should be being shaped by our biblical worldview. They talk about it. The third reason is you can then immerse yourself in the story. You can participate in the story. And uh, in participating in the biblical narrative and, and, and immersing ourselves in the story, it allows us to it allows us to deny other stories. So it's quite interesting, in a sense, a lot of you know our family, um, Diana and three kids, they all say hello and wish they could be here. Um, they're not here because they disturb me on Zoom most of the time. Um, but you would all love that and I just wouldn't. Um, but Caleb is at the stage now where he's nine years old and he's beginning to realise that the narrative he's been given and the family that he's grown up in and a part isn't necessarily the narrative that his friends share. So he, he had, he's having interesting conversations with his friends about whether they do or don't believe in God. Uh, and he's suddenly coming home and realizing that his worldview has been shaped by myself and Diana and, and, and his family that he's part of. So we actually, um, in the summer, uh, when we were going out and able to move around a little bit more freely, I took him to McDonald's after church. He started volunteering at church when he can uh, at that stage when there was stuff happening for him to do. And um, I took him out for McDonald's and we were sitting over at McDonald's afterwards. And he began to talk about having to believe in this, in, in Jesus and having to believe in God separate from me. So what I need to know it for myself, don't I, Dad? I need to understand the narrative I'm in separate from what you believe. And he, and he was big trying to unpick our story. Well, who else is Christians in our family? So listed who, who you know, and, and when did they become Christians? And how did, he was trying to understand this story and place himself in his family story but also understand it in its wider context of, of being able to actually, he wouldn't articulate it like this, but he's having to try to deny other stories that are being presented to him and in and around him. He, he says a funny, he's, he tells me a funny story. Um, I, I, this may, that he said about his friend, Arturis, he says, so here's the weird thing. He says to me that um, I was just chatting to my friend and, and this sort of thing. And he goes, he's, and he, he's talking to me about Santa and, and talking to me about how, how he'll, and they're talking about Christmas and Santa. And he goes, but he doesn't believe in God. And, and Kelly said, he has this moment. He's like, in his little mind, he's like, I don't get this. Like, like, you know, I don't, I really don't understand that. I've really been trying to talk to him about God. And I just, and it, and it goes on, uh, you know, in terms of, it's really funny, the conversation that he's having with his friend, but it's exactly this sense of him wanting to be able to find his place in the story and also allowing it to help him to deny or accept other stories and other narratives that are around. The, the final reason that's given for doing God's story is to, it helps us to understand the beauty of the church. It helps us to understand the beauty of church and the beauty of engagement with church. Uh, and there's something so counterculturally beautiful and uh, deep about church and that story of the church and the way that we come together and the way that we are gathered there really would be very few other reasons why so many people from so many different cultures from absolutely so many different backgrounds would gather today on zoom or in person if they can depending on the restrictions in the nations where they are the church should be this beautiful multicultural um, reflection of the heart of god uh, to to the world um, and you will know, you would have heard me say this before, that the, the church, you know, this is it's a flippant phrase that the church is the hope of the world. But um, it really is that sense of the God story revealing to us that 
church is really plan A in terms of the hope of the world. And uh, I, I, that will either bring you into despair as you look at this screen or bring you into hope. But you, you look at us and think, what the heck? Like we're looking at us and thinking, well, if we're the hope for the world, then like, you know, there's there's a big problem. But but the good news is that one of the first hopes that's given to us uh, in, in creation will, will answer some of that as we as we look through it. But genuinely, the beauty of the church, the way we come together, the way we care, the way we love, the way we seek and follow Jesus together brings hope uh, and, and is something that's incredibly beautiful for us to look into. And but so you open your Bible and, and you read the first four words in mind, Genesis 1, 1, in the, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And then it goes on to say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a, it's a huge statement right from the off. Um, so you, it's fu fundamentally, there's a worldview here that says in the beginning, God. There is a creator. The Bible sets up the narrative of, of scripture is that there is a creator. Um, and in the beginning was God. Uh, there's a quote from someone called Adam Clark. I've, I've not come across Adam Clark before, but I love this quote. It, it, it's one of those quotes I had to read three times to really understand it. Um, so I'll, I'll read it and, uh, and hope I get it and, and we capture it in the first one. But it says this. God is the eternal, independent and self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made. Illimitable in his immensity. That's the bit I struggled with last time illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself, because infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by himself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, or from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally just and right and kind. I, I don't think I would have been able to write that kind of paragraph and I remember when I was at Bible college being told that in fact even as an articulate a description as impressive a description of God as that is written it simply isn't good enough we actually don't have our language cannot comprehend it we don't have enough descriptors in our language to be able to describe God we we simply can't couldn't get close this is a great attempt I think this is going to be, you know, one where people look at it and go, man, like, I'm not sure I could outdo that if I tried to sit and write about God. But we must understand we, we know only of God what is described to us, what is revealed to us, what, what, what is given to us to, to comprehend. But God, in, in that sense, for God to be God, he has to be absolutely other. It has to be beyond our comprehension. It has to be beyond our complete understanding. So I cannot come to you and sit here and say, I oh, like I've got this. Like I understand the this five roots of, of the biblical story lead to this, and, and this is how we understand that, and that reveals this of God. Yes, there's some truth in that, but I can't tell you I've got this down. I don't. I can't tell you that I fully understand God. I don't. And that is exactly what drives us to worship. What Christy uh, Christy described earlier is of course 
good theology should lead us to worship. So when we come to the beginning and we're told in the beginning was God and God created the heavens and the earth, when we read of God and we understand who God is through his God story, it must drive us to worship and devotion. It must. It must. That, that the purpose of, of these verses is not, you, you can misunderstand and misinterpret what's going on in, in, the, in the Genesis narratives and the verses. We're told in, in, the, in the notes here, the main point and the intention of this creative narrative is not uh, theological abstract notions about who God is. This isn't, this isn't intended to be a science textbook on how the earth was created. It isn't intended to be a theological thesis in that sense so that you understand about who God is, but, but it's telling us the story to help us to understand how God's people live in God's world on God's terms. It's helping us to understand the story we're in, to marvel at the story we're in, and to worship the God of whom this story is revealing to us. But yet there's so much more to be revealed. I, I, one of my favorite books um, to read has been the Narnia series with Caleb, like reading them all and with Isabella and, and going through them all. And obviously the Lion, the Rich and the Wardrobe is the most well known. Um, but actually, once you go beyond the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, you, you do get these great pictures um, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader and others of, of this sense of, of of grandeur around heaven and eternity and what is beyond and what we don't understand. This sense of walking through a doorway and realizing, oh, I really did only understand in part. If the writers of the Bible say they only, you know, I'm looking in a different, I understand, but I only understand in part, then it would be arrogance indeed for us to say, oh no, we've got this. We understand fully um, what's going on. It's being revealed to us and we're beginning to understand. But but there's so much more that, that we want to know and that we want to understand. There are so much more that we could come at time and time again uh, in scripture to begin to see um, what would be described in the Bible as the manifold wisdom of God, like the different uh, reflections of, of God and the different understandings of it. So in the beginning, God has so much weightiness to it and there's so much understanding in terms of the worldview of this. Quite simply, I. Some of you will be sitting there going, yeah, but there, there, there are these evolution narratives. There, there are other worldviews. There are other ways of looking at this. There are other, other um, concepts. This isn't the only uh, story that we, we should be looking at this from. Um, and to a certain extent, um, I'm going to disappoint you. Um, <laughs> there are great books you can read on that. If that listen, I grew up in a household where my dad runs a, an electron microscopy lab for Imperial College London, which is one of the best universities in, in England. And he would oversee a biology lab. Um, and I remember asking him a few questions about this uh, and, and thinking, my goodness, my dad is in the deep end of, of wanting to unpack this kind of whether or not we evolved or, or whether, we, whether God was um, at the root of that evolution process or whether we want to be, believe in a, a strict seven-day creation narrative. In truth, I'll disappoint you because for me, it, it became an end in itself of conversation. It became an end in itself of detail and conversation because of the kind of narrative I felt we were dealing with, the kind of text and story we were dealing with in Genesis. Um, it, I, there, were, there were simple things that my dad would say to me when I was younger, like, 
the, the human eye is just so complex that, you know, people would say it's almost impossible that it evolved, you know? And so, so that, that's not that he was a strict seven day creationist, but, but he, he, would, he would have introduced us to these concepts. Where, where would I land with this? One, I'd land with this that if you do want to do further reading on that, there's loads you can do, and we can point you in some directions to do that. Two, please understand that certain debates are, become an end in themselves, and you can get lost and lose the point of why you originally came into this debate in the first place and what you wanted to understand from it in the first place. And three, please understand that ultimately, um, and how would I phrase this? Ultimately, sometimes when people come into a debate to try and prove they're right, the debate in itself comes onto a wrong, goes off on a wrong footing. Um, and what I mean by that is that, that we, we, our worldview, our worldview says that um, if I say to you, I'm following the scientific evidence as a politician, that has a weight to it. You believe I'm following the factual trail because we associate the word science with, with fact. Many of the early Christian science, uh, early, uh, early scientists that discovered loads about it were Christians because they pursued science as their devotion of worship. It helped them to understand the creator. So I'm just saying to you that, that there's many different lanes and avenues that you want to look down uh, and look through. Um, I, I remember also like have, having plenty of conversations where um, it's impossible to scientifically prove love, for example. And I, I, I actually am a person who enjoys science and because of the household I was brought up in and pursues it and, and wants to understand it. But what I'm saying is your starting point for pursuit of it, your starting point for understanding it, it seems to me we, we've skewed that slightly in society. I don't think there's a debate between the two is what I'm saying. I think there's beautiful uh, harmony in the two uh, and, 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 in, and informing our worldview in the two. So in clarity, what I would say, because that hasn't been very clear, I don't think there's a big debate between faith and science. I think that's a wrong uh, premise to start from. I think that science reveals to me the glory and the goodness of the creator would be a better way of articulating what I'm trying to articulate. Two, I think there is real fruit in research and understanding what you believe but don't think that you will be able to answer everything. That's simply arrogance. It seems to me the world is too complex you, 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 in, in that uh, route of, of going. Three, understand what worldview you're working with and how it will, will shape you. My, my simple way of explaining it to my, to my son is, and, and, and my kids is just to ask, I say, look at me, look at you, look at the complexities of our body. Look at, look at how we are put together. Look at the complexities of the earth in and around us. And, and they give some stats for that. The speed of, life, of light is 300,000 kilometers per second. That means if I shoot a light gun from where I'm standing, it goes around the world, which is 25,000 miles, seven times through my heart before I can even move. That's the speed of light. Like before I can even move, it's gone around the world seven times. To get to the moon, in, you can get to the moon in one second at the speed of light. The sun is 91 million miles away. The speed of light gets us there in eight minutes. To the edge of our galaxy, the speed of light takes 50,000 years to get to the edge of our very own Milky Way. The speed of light can get to the, to the moon in a second, 
but to get to the edge of our galaxy, it takes 50,000 years. You know, the mind boggles. The point is the mind boggles at the complexity of the world we live in, at at, at the the uniqueness of the, the conditions that exist for humans to survive. Personally, I, I, I think whatever your faith position in, and bear in mind that people that want to remove God still have an act of faith in belief here in how we're existing. Whatever your faith, it seems to me, it, 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 it's become harder and harder for me over the years to, to deny the existence of God than to acknowledge the existence of God because of the conditions that we live. We, we, we find us, we find life. Um, and the more I understand of it, we find that. So I've, I've spent a long time there in terms of, of couching that. But I think it's important um, that we do understand that. Otherwise, if we flick over that um, debate, and I'm not the best person for that kind of debate, um, but if, if we flick over that debate, we're going to miss something here. What we are told in terms of our creation narrative, which is poet, poet, poetic in its style that it's given to us, understand this. The creation narrative that you read in Genesis is given to you in a poetic style. What we see is God is creator. Um, We are created from love and for love. We are created from love and for love would uh, as one of the defining. We have this order that's given to us that in the the first three days, God is creating from chaos to order, we're told. So the first three days, examples. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There, we already have a hint of the relationship of of the family of the Trinity of God. We are getting an insight here. In other points of scripture, it says that it was for Jesus and through Jesus that the world was created. So already from the beginning of our story, remember, we don't tell God what he is or what he can be. He's revealing to us who he is and what he can be. We are being told that God, that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. We, 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 the scriptural narrative is Trinity from the beginning and all the way through. It doesn't shift. Again, these are huge concepts. Thank you, Sean Christie, for giving me Genesis and Origins. These are huge concepts and huge biblical concepts that we're looking at that within the next 20 minutes, I could be sitting here for the next 20 years and trying to explain it to you. Um, however, where I settled in my heart when I wrestled with it was, I don't tell God what he is. I don't tell God who and what he is. He reveals to me who he is and how it holds together. And the big questions I may have about that, some may be answered here through diligent study and, and relationship in the church and sitting under wisdom. And some simply will only be answered when I pass through when I'm before him, when I'm, when I'm before God, I will maybe then truly comprehend. I don't even think then I will truly be able to comprehend God. I don't think I want to. A God I can fully comprehend is an idol. The, the danger of me wanting to fully comprehend God will, create me to, will, will lead me to create an idol. And idol worship is something we frequently have problem with in our, uh, in our God story. So I must come to a point where I accept I'm human and he's God. I'm created and he is creator. There must come a point when I, when I understand that. But it seems uh, in, in this that there's this clear order that the, the trinity, that the community, that the, the, the family of God is taking chaos and brought order in the first three days. It's taking chaos and brought order. 
So we have these beautiful phrases, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the dark. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Later on, there was a vault and the separation of land from water. And you get this. And that was the first day after the light. And that was the second day. And then you get to um, the three days where you, he brings em takes emptiness and brings it to life. So chaos goes uh, from chaos to order and emptiness to life. He created mankind in his image. So we get this beautiful phrasing that comes towards the end. God. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. This is central, absolutely central to a Christian worldview and a Christian understanding of, of, of the earth that we live in. The secondary reason why I, I am uh, so convinced of God in the creation narrative is because of where other narratives take us. An evolutionary narrative doesn't have a sanctity for life in the same way as this. It just simply doesn't. It would be difficult to argue it does because it's about the survival of the fittest. Whereas the scripture immediately starts and says that we, 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 we have a problem with, surely if we've started off on that narrative, surely we have a problem in, in our humanity that the earth is about the survival of the fittest. Must kick against your natural instinct. It must. Because there is something in us that, that, that knows not, that when we've seen uh, uh, um, uh, the breath that goes into the baby for a first time when it is born, when we know love, when we know that the, the, um, the magnitude and the beauty and the sanctity of life, that's a totally different worldview. And it is from that worldview that we are able to take an articulate Christian narrative that speaks out against injustice, that speaks out against racism, that speaks out against genocide, that speaks out against war. Why? Because we fundamentally understand that when I look at you and you look at me, we were both created within the image of God. We are image bearers. It's, it's, it's huge. It's huge. We cannot un underestimate how huge that that statement is in creation. It's why we have such a high value for human life. That's why there uh, uh, in, our, in our creation narrative. Interestingly, I do want to, don't tell Adam this because he's much smarter than me, but I do want to add something to his notes here. Um, I think he'd agree with me. I'm going to be arrogant enough to say that because um, I, um, but on in, then, in a sense, when we looked at the first three days, chaos to order, then we looked at emptiness to life, then we look at um, the creation narrative of being created in the image of God. What we do skip over then, and I think we skip over this frequently, is chapter two, verse two. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he'd rested from all the work in creating that he had done. There's no nod at the moment here to that seventh day. The reason I want to put in a stop here and a nod towards that seventh day is when you stop for any given day in the week, any day, when any 24 hour period and you call that Sabbath, when you rest, 
when you when you switch off from your daily routine, when you deliberately worship God, when you deliberately delight yourself in, in God and take Sabbath. That's what Sabbath is, a deliberate rest that delights in God, that sets before it the worship of God, that wants to do something that will recharge, refresh and renew you. When you do that, when you stop from work for a whole 24 hour period, you acknowledge that God is God and that you are human and that you have been created. One that you need to physically rest, that your body isn't infinite in its energy and in its ability to keep going and going and going. And two, when you agree not to try, and if you think about that time then, when you agree not to go and harvest something, when you agree not to go on to work the field, when you agree not to go to, so when you make a deliberate decision not to go to work, you are trusting in God for your provision. You are trusting in God. On that day, you are saying, I will stop because I am being held. I'm, I can't force this to happen. I'm not making this happen. You stop and, and you, 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 you acknowledge that God is God. It's, it's an act of worship and it's an act of understanding where your dependency lies. Because as you will see when we come up into chapter three, the biblical narrative and the biblical understanding is of the fall and of good and evil is that as, as part, part of the fall is that we understand that we wanted to, to make ourselves full of knowledge and actually take over and believe that we could be our own gods. We want to put ourselves at the center of the narrative. We want to make ourselves mini gods who, who, who work all the time, who create everything, who are able to do everything. But it's so countercultural when we stop and say, I trust, I trust. On the seventh day, I trust. I rest. I reflect upon the goodness of God. I understand my place in the story by acknowledging Sabbath. And I don't think Sabbath was something I was really brought up in, uh, in the sense of what I was taught. There were practices I was brought up in and around Sabbath. Um, I, I think in our house, we weren't allowed to watch EastEnders on a Sunday. Um, I think we weren't allowed to watch EastEnders most days, but definitely not on a Sunday. You, it was, it, you know, so, so there were practices I remember, like the TV must be down for certain amounts of time. You're definitely not allowed to watch EastEnders. And you've got to be home for lunchtime. Like, I think if you ask me, like, and no matter how late you went out on a Saturday night, get yourself to church. Doesn't matter. Like, if you, I don't care if you walk in the house at 6 a.m. in the morning, you wash your face and off you go to church. Like, so there were definitely, like, practices I knew and I understood around Sabbath. But it wasn't stop, rest, glorify God, um, understand what it means to, to walk in the light of, of, um, of fully acknowledging your place in the story and then there so i think there's much that you can discuss later on um uh, i was asked to put together some questions for you and one of the questions i put together is on sabbath for you i think there's just much more we can learn here um, peter scazzaro writes really well on it um as does um the elimination of hurry guy uh, john mark Hunt. Um, he writes really well on it so so what i say would be informed by a lot of what they would be saying anyway so bits to go to them they will say it far better than me we then move in um by the way that's sessions one and two okay just so you know um that's sessions one and two um there uh in terms of understanding where we are and we've got about 10 to, we're ending at like quarter, we've got about 10 minutes left i reckon to fly through um the third session um which is on sin and evil i mean so easy to sum up in 10 minutes who would struggle who would struggle <laughs> well we're coming in here um to understand um 
we we understand this the garden narrative like the eden narrative is really around trees um and gardens and and it, and this is replicated in the revelation narrative when we come back um towards that um there and that's uh yeah it's just an interesting um place to start but there are two trees there's this tree of, of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil um so they've spoken about them here as like humility versus pride um and having this understanding there, there's only one prohibition in the garden and that's found in genesis 2 um, 16 and, and the prohibition in the garden is given as a command you're free to eat from any other tree in the garden but you mustn't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die um, so there's a consequence already in here and there's this interesting interplay that we we have to be become aware of um of free will in this instance um that we to put simply and as as is put simply here ultimate love and ultimate freedom must go together so for us to genuinely love, for us to genuinely love, and, and this is the, the, the formational setup that God wants for us, that he wants this reciprocal love relationship with us, this reciprocal walking in the garden, this reciprocal understanding of, 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 uh, of, of love, genuine understanding of love, ultimate love and ultimate freedom go together. Um, Dinah and I are watching a series at the moment on, I think it was originally a Channel 4 series called Humans, it's on Prime or Netflix. To my shame, we've probably got so many of these channels, I don't know which one it's on. But um, it's on either Prime or Netflix. And, and it's about, um, has anyone seen that? You can give me a reaction, I think, a thumbs up. If you've seen this thing, humans, are we like the only people watching it? Okay, good. Someone's seen it. Elaine's seen it. I saw one thumb. So the, the, the premise of this is that AI has got so good that most people have robots in their home, and they're called synths, synthetic and they basically help them. They help them by making their breakfast, cleaning the house. Like they can do everything, okay, that humans can do. Apart from they shouldn't be able to understand emotion. They should not be able to understand emotion. So it's really weird when you watch an actor playing an AI robot who can do, looks human, it is human, they're an actor, but looks human, can do everything that human can do other than understand emotion and the intricacies of emotion. And the way the series goes is that some of them have a have a, a problem in their system or a, or a good thing in their system that means they can understand emotion and it's a whole interplay about where we're going to end up in in years to come but it did make me reflect on on this uh part of what we're, we're talking about here in that if if you're not created with choice if you're not created with the freedom to choose the ultimate freedom to choose then you cannot choose to genuinely love that's not love. This is program. It's program. And some of these synths are, are programmed to, to imitate the fact that they love the people that they're with. Uh, but it's not true. The whole premise of the program is that it, it looks ridiculous. It is ridiculous to think that that, that, that can happen. That it, almost this, this argument of science and you know being definitive and all revealing and all concluding was scientifically proved to me i love you scientifically proved to me that that poem was beautiful science isn't the only truth there's truth in that i'm not a science denier. i enjoy it but but don't overplay its hand don't overplay what it can and can't tell you it can't tell you whether that poem was beautiful 
or why when a, a young 22 year old black uh, female stands up at an in, in, inauguration of a president and reads a spoken word that so many people would say, I just resonated so deeply. It moved me. It, in my inner, you know, in my understanding of emotion, it moved me. Because we are created in, in the image of God. Ultimate love and ultimate freedom go together. So we know that the, the frame here, the setup here, for, um, for, for how, in a sense, the fall rolls out and, uh, and, and takes place. We must understand, um, it, it, I mean, the notes say this, um, the plot takes a dramatic shift in the start of chapter three because a serpent appears. The serpent is a metaphor for evil, but it is a mystery. And the Bible doesn't really give us an answer for why it is there. It's humbling, isn't it? It's humbling as a teacher because I want to be able to be really smart and say, right, this is what we understand about evil. This is uh, okay. Like, yeah, we don't really get it. We don't get it fully. We don't fully understand. But but what they do note here um, that the present that, that the presence of evil before sin must lead us to conclude that not everything about evil can be explained. However, the serpent whispers to Eve and gives us an insight in the way evil works and operates. Here, we must become aware that there's an enemy in our story and we must develop a warfare theology, they said, because there's an enemy in and amongst our story. I wonder how that strikes you, whether you think, oh, settle down, Steve, it's a Sunday morning, mate. Like, because it's quite, that's quite powerful language. You must, you must, and we must develop a warfare mentality. We must. The Bible describes the, the enemy, the devil. Some of you are even like, I'm not sure I even believe in that. The Bible describes the devil as like a roaring lion wanting to take me out. I must be, I must be on guard. I must be living with a warfare mentality. When I come to the God, there's part of this God story that this is part of your training. Like this is part of your warfare mentality is I need to understand that, that the, the tricks of the enemy. I need to understand the ways um, that this would work. I need to understand um, how this how this works. And then, and um, and in that sense, they said to us there there are interesting notes that we can draw from the remarks that Eve. One is that is the devil's intention it is the snake's intention to distort their perception of God. It's the snake's intention to distort their perception of God. The enemy wasn't primarily interested in getting them not to believe in God. It doesn't say that, oh, oh, how can you really believe in God? Really? Ridiculous. God doesn't exist. Not worried too much about that. So you might say, oh, Will, right? We believe in God, Steve. What are you talking about the enemy for? Then we need to take note here that the, the, the enemy wasn't uh, primarily trying to uh, deny God's existence, but twist their understanding of what God was like. Remember the quote we said at the beginning, what comes into your head the first time you hear the word God is the most important thing about you. They have attributed that quote to Tova, so it probably is. Well, I think Packer speaks about something very similar in knowing God right at the beginning. Second um, uh, uh, point here is that essentially they are saying to Adam and Eve, 
at this point, it's not enough to be godlike. It's not enough. To be made in the image of God is not enough. What about actually becoming God yourself? And they make a, 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 what I believe is a, st a stunning point here in the teaching. This should stop you in your tracks. It says this, the devil isn't really interested in us worshipping him. He's interested in us worshipping ourselves. It's not a primary intention of the when we think it's not a primary intention of the enemy to draw your worship towards him. Just have absolutely content with you becoming consumed with yourself and becoming God over your own life and your own existence. This is where we learn not only about the enemy, but we learn something about ourselves says this, we would rather look at our own reflection than look at God's reflection. We spend more time thinking about how others view us than really what our true identity is in God. It seems that the power, in power, it is easier for us to choose power than love. It is easier to be God than to love God. It is easier to control people than to love people. It is easier to own life rather than love life. That's Henri Nguyen. I'll read it again. It seems that the, that the power is easier for us to choose than love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life rather than love life. The result of this is what they describe as a selfish, self-centered gene. We are self-absorbed and we self-promote. We are self-absorbed and we self-promote. If you didn't believe that was true, go and check out uh, your social media or channel of choice. We are self-absorbed and we're self-promote. If Just look at some of the political decisions we make. This is another problem with the evolutionary mindset. We are meant to be improving, yet we don't. We, we, are, we are meant to be like, you know, we are meant to be evolving and improving, yet it seems fundamentally at our heart no matter when you lived, whenever you lived, we are selfish at our core as a humanity. We all seem to be broken in this instance and in this same way, time and time again. The world became contaminated with sin. The immediate consequences of sin were shame and fear. Shame and fear. Adam, Adam and Eve got into shame and fear uh, in, in this moment. We are then introduced very, very simply in, in 321. There's a consequence. There's a consequence here in three as we come. The consequence of sin is death. This is a very important narrative to understand that. I'm glad I paused there because otherwise we won't truly understand later on this life death narrative that comes up time and time again in the Bible. It's, it's, it's my genuine belief that the what is sown here helped me to really understand the concepts of heaven and hell. I really believe that hell is the ultimate outworking of my freedom to choose to live separate from God. And I'm handed over to that choice for eternity, should I choose to. God in his in his absolute right, just, fully loving understanding says, I I have to give you over to that for eternity. And everything the biblical writers say about hell 
all the description they give to it, all the narrative that they put around it tells me that I simply do not understand the gravity of that decision. If God is all light, then I'm choosing to live in darkness for eternity. If God is all love, then I'm choosing to live without love for eternity. I'm choosing to live in the absence of God for eternity. And that is surely hell. It's hell. The writers just try to give you pictures to understand how dra dramatic and drastic that kind of decision is. Life and death narratives start here. You, you see a, a very simple phrase. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Death enters the narrative for an animal here. There's a, there has to have been a, a blood sacrifice here because they're given the skin from an animal to cover themselves. So we understand here again, another biblical narrative and biblical story that runs through when, when, we're, when we are, are being told in the Old Testament, this, the sacrificial system, that then we understand the death of Jesus, the blood of Jesus that shed. There's narratives here that we understand, we come back to. The Passover lands, like, there's narratives here that we come back to and we understand later on. Um, and at the attempt of at, at the attempt of rescuing this from being the the, the most um, uh, downhearted down session you have for the year, I'll end on the good news. And the good news is that God doesn't walk away. That God does not walk away. That God has entered the kind of love with His creation that is best described as a covenant love. He is covenant committed to us, to the earth, to his creation. There's an explanation of it. God is covenant. What we see in the passages that we've studied, what's really important to us to know about our story is God is a loving creator bound to his creation. God and his creation are knit together in a gracious and powerful movement of himself towards creation. Creation only happens because of the desire of the creator. And God was calling creation to a faithful response of glad obedience. The best word to describe this relationship is covenant. Covenant love is the rugged commitment to be with someone and for someone until divine ends. So sure, we have this setup of this beautiful story that falls and is broken. And it's well for you to understand in a year like we've just been through that we live in a broken world. It's well for me to understand it because it helps me to understand the world I live in. The world we live in is described like a, a pregnancy. Pregnant pains. The world we live in is crying out to be redeemed and reformed. We are crying out for a new heaven and a new earth. That's the biblical story. But the good news in this story is in spite of sin entering, in spite of the fall, God does not dismiss his covenant with his creation. And the same God that can make chaos, that can turn chaos into order, that can, uh, uh, in, in the early narratives that we were describing, which I've now lost on my page, <laughs> in the early narratives that, that we were in and that we were describing, can bring chaos to order, can bring emptiness to life. That same God doesn't walk away from his covenant, but in covenant love, works through Noah comes next who becomes kind of almost the next Adam if you like you see Jesus who becomes the second Adam later 
this language that's been given, this, this covenant language that has been given is never forgotten or lost or left. Same God who br brings the heaven and earth together, the same God who created the galaxies, the stars and the sky, the same God. Here's our cry. Here's our prayer for redemption, for restoration, for a new heaven and a new earth. If you're dissatisfied with where we are right now, sure, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We, we struggle with the consequence of death, but we cling to new life. It's why, it's why sharing the gospel is so important, because of this eternal narrative. It's why, it's why understanding the dignity of life is so important, because of this eternal narrative. It's why coming before God in faithful worship is so important, because of this narrative. So, I mean... I won't have done it justice. Not, and I don't want you to go, oh, you did, Steve. That was great. Thanks. I won't have done it justice because I can't. I don't have the language. I don't have the capacity. I can't grasp it. I can't grasp it. But I'll offer you from the notes and from what I've learned and from my experience, the gold that I've found so far in knowing that I still have my hands in the soil and I'm digging over these texts and I'm trying to find more because we haven't exhausted this yet. We've not fully understood it. We've not fully comprehended it yet. But the gold I've got is enough to keep me mining. And it's enough to keep me, me, me going back time and time again and trying to understand more and more of what he's done. So I'm going to end there. That is probably a little bit longer than 40 minutes. My apologies. Um, but I've got three questions for you. Is that right, Charles, Christy? Um, these are the questions I've got. And then I can jump off and you guys do your thing in Zoom, I guess. But the first one, um, let me show it properly. Um, in the beginning, God, as you've reflected again on the origin story, what stood out to you about the character and the nature of God? What, 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 what struck you today? Take a picture of it, yeah, because when you go in the groups, it will disappear. Two, if I, I've argued that the day seven of rest should have been included in this, in the notes and in the narrative. Um, if it's true that what I've said is that a day of rest should equal worship, how does that change or develop your view of Sabbath? How are you committing to your Sabbath currently and how can this change? And then the third quote, um, the devil isn't really interested in our worship of him as he is in getting us to worship ourselves. What, what insights have you gained today about the nature of sin? And again, like, so what? Like, what, you, what does that mean? How do, you, how do you avoid that? How do we, how does that shape our formation in Christ? So I'll leave you with those. Have a fantastic day, the morning. I wish we could have been with you, obviously. So do the kids. I missed lunch. You would have provided me with a lovely lunch. Um, so I'm going to go and uh, scrabble together some biscuits from somewhere and a cup of coffee. But have a great conversation. And um, we love you guys. Miss you lots. So do well.